Now, although we're not in the Easter season, I thought it prudent to chat with you for a moment about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in an interesting way. Specifically, I want us to concentrate this morning on the reason why Jesus came, and that reason is salvation. He came for one reason, to redeem us from the penalty of sin, and this is what I want to chat with you about today. So for the next few minutes this morning, I've entitled my comments, Salvation in Metaphor. Now, before beginning, I want to give credit where credit is due. This sermon, or this talk, as I, I like to say, comes from notes that I took in one of two classes um, that I took from Dr. John Nixon, and that was more than 25 years ago, if you can believe it. I, I'm older than I look. <laughs> His comments and my notes serve uh, the basis for what I'll tell you today. And as such, I have to admit that some of the thoughts are not originally mine. I think you'll forgive me for that, right? Uh, because, because of this, I, think, I, I do think of myself as, as um, an imperfect vessel for doing this kind of thing. I, I like to say that I'm not a trained minister. I, I speak for a living, but not in this forum. And so I have the habit of thinking that one has to be perfect in order to share something from God. That's certainly not true, right? Anyway, before we open God's Word, let's ask Him to join us. Holy Father, we submit ourselves to your instruction this morning. We know that we need your guidance, and so we depend on you. We need you to have open and receptive hearts. Help us in this way, we pray and we will be your obedient servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to the book of Romans in your Bible. Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 21 through 26. This was the scripture reading uh, this morning. Romans chapter 23, 21 through 26, and I'll be reading in your hearing from the New International Version. That may not be the version that's on your screen or, or on the screens that you see if you're streaming in. But nevertheless, you'll, you'll get the point. So let's begin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
This is a beautifully crafted passage, a passage that theologians call a high point in Paul's thoughts concerning the nature of salvation. Now, one writer said that this passage alone could be called the Romans letter in embryo, everything pointing to Jesus. Christ is the righteousness from God for all who put their faith in him. No true believer is excluded no matter what. But as we look more closely at Paul's words here in Romans 3, I would like us to analyze them using an unorthodox method. I want us to notice the grammar. In particular, I want you to notice a grammatical error that occurs in this passage, though this error is not a mistake. Paul does this on purpose. You see, Paul knows that there is no way to fully describe with mere words the glory of the provision that God has made through his Son for all believers. Paul is a human being, you see, and so are we. So simple words cannot fully describe this complex idea. Therefore, Paul deliberates using an ungrammatical form. He mixes his metaphors. Now, let me review quickly for those of us who, like me, are not English experts. A metaphor is a is a means in grammar of comparing two unrelated ideas. A big difference between a metaphor on the one hand and a simile on the other is that a metaphor does not use the word like while a simile does. You remember that from English class, right? For example, William Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. A mixed metaphor, therefore, is a means in grammar of comparing two unrelated metaphors. For example, if someone wanted you to get a clue, they could say, wake up and smell the coffee, or they could say, read the writing on the wall. But if someone wanted you to get a clue, and they said, wake up and smell the coffee on the wall, you would be very confused, wouldn't you? You would be confused because they mixed their metaphors or made a grammatical error. So once more, Paul knows that mere words cannot skillfully convey the glory of the provision that God has made through his Son for all believers. No, he's not skillful enough to do this, but he skillfully does something unorthodox. He uses mixed metaphors. And that's what makes this passage so beautiful and memorable, especially for our thoughts today. In the few words of this very well-known passage, Paul uses three symbols from three different arenas of life to talk about the very same thing, the wonder and the glory of salvation and of Jesus. One symbol from the courtroom, 
one symbol from the slave block and one symbol from the sanctuary. The courtroom, the slave block, and the sanctuary. Let me begin with the courtroom me metaphor. The f this metaphor comes from the world of jurisprudence. Notice again verses 23 and 24. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Now justification, if you know your Bible, means acquittal, to be cleared of all charges, to be declared guiltless. Now importantly, in Scott's law, it provides for two acquittal verdicts, not guilty and not proven. In Jesus Christ, we, re we receive the former verdict, not guilty. A guilty person may get off for lack of evidence or have his sentence commuted. But to be found not guilty means complete exoneration. And this is the miracle of redemption in Jesus Christ, not guilty. We, we don't get off because of some legal technicality or loophole in the law. Acquittal certifies the innocence of the accused. Therefore, there is nothing hanging over our heads. We walk away scot-free. The charges against us are dropped and the records of our wrongs are expunged. That's the result of our day in court with Jesus Christ on our side. However, there is something important to note about this. Remember I said that Scott's law, in Scott's law, there are two acquittal verdicts, not guilty and not proven. According to Paul's letter, we get the former verdict, not guilty. But consider this, when I think carefully about my own life, when we consider our own lives, when we consider the things that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we've talked about, the things that we've texted, the things that we're planning to text, the things that we're planning to do, how can we expect a not guilty verdict? That verdict is completely undeserved because we are guilty as sin. But thanks be to God that we don't get the not proven verdict. But, but because of God's provision, that non-proven verdict would not be possible. There is substantial evidence against you and against me. But we go to court and we get that not guilty verdict even when we are guilty. Who could have thought that going to court could be so much fun? <laughs> it's a joy to go to court when you know that you'll be vindicated. And the source of our vindication is Jesus Christ. We are vindicated because we claim the substitution that he made so many Easter's years back. Listen to what Paul says in the epistle to Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us 
not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus. Our vindication is because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Who says amen to that? The second metaphor comes from the slave block. Now let's look again at Romans. Once again, I want you to look at verses 23 and 24. And again, this verse says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now that word redemption represents a very complicated term, and that complicated term means manumission. Now in Greek, that word means ransom paid for a slave or prisoner of war. Now in ancient Rome... Slavery was a very common fiscal remedy. When someone owned a debt that they could not pay back, that person became legally bound to the creditor. That person would have to go to work in the fields of the creditor until that debt was paid. Sometimes it took many years. Now, if that system were in operation today... (laughs) you and I would be chained to the desk of Visa or MasterCard, working our fingers to the bone. But listen, this second metaphor represents a very profound truth. We are born slaves, chained to sin. We serve its destructive ends both day and night with no way to liberate ourselves, absolutely no way. Even when we come to hate our very lives because of sin, we have no power to liberate ourselves. Think about it. When you and I think of the things, the sins that we struggle with over time, we must admit that we've struggled with the very same things for many years. In fact, there is something that I've learned that has made me much more gracious and much more humble over the past few years, God is way more merciful than we can ever comprehend. Consider the fact that there, there could be two people, right, who are struggling with the very same thing. One comes to Christ, asks for, for, uh, for forgiveness, and to be freed from that sin, and is instantaneously freed. The other person comes to Christ, and is apparently not freed for many, many years. That person struggles day and night with the very same thing over and over again. We praise the first person, but we judge the second person, at times harshly. But here's the thing that I want you to remember today. Jesus comes and offers both of them manumission. He buys them both back. It just happens at different times in our human vision. I have no explanation for that. I really can't explain it. Uh, No explanation for that discrepancy. I simply won't try to explain it. 
But I know this. God is God and he knows everything. He paid both their debts in blood and will set both of them free even if he, if, if he has to do that at the very last moment on their deathbeds. But I also learned this. When we're freed, we do not become free to serve ourselves. Hear me now. We belong to the person who has redeemed us, who has offered us manumission. We are bought with a price. Here's what Oswald Chambers says in his classic, Our Utmost for His Highest. Listen to this. We have the idea that we can dedicate our gifts to God. However, you cannot dedicate what is not yours. There is actually only one thing you can dedicate to God, and that is your right to yourself. Your right to yourself. If you will give God your right to yourself, he will make a holy experiment out of you, and his experiments always succeed. Praise God for that. And finally, we come to that third metaphor that I was talking about. And it comes from the sanctuary. Turning again to Romans, Paul ends this beautiful passage in verse 25 of chapter 3. And he says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, as soon as you hear that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, or in the King James Version, it says propitiation, we should automatically think of the sanctuary. Listen, the term Paul uses is only found here in Romans chapter 25 and in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. Go home and check it if you want to. And that is only in those two places in the New Testament. This is not very clear in English, but when you compare the two texts in the Greek language, it becomes abundantly clear. This phrasing is closely connected to the mercy seat. Jesus is the Lamb of God sacrificed for us. He laid down his life to atone for our sin so that we can have peace with God. But on the day of atonement, once a year, the high priest would enter that most holy place carrying blood. And no, at no other time, I'm sorry, during the year was he permitted to breach the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And if he walked in with just one sin unconfessed on his heart, he would be struck dead immediately. Once before the Ark of the Covenant, the priest would sprinkle that blood on the lamb of the mercy seat um, on behalf of the people. All of the people would stand outside their tents with bated breath, entering the mercy seat with the priest by faith. The mercy seat then is the place of atonement. Paul says here that the mercy seat is 
Jesus Christ our Lord, is Jesus Christ. In fact, everything in the temple, in the sanctuary, stands for Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb whose blood is sprinkled for us. Jesus is the high priest who applies the blood. And Jesus is the mercy seat on whom the blood falls, the place where divine wrath turns into divine grace. Everything depends on Jesus and Jesus alone. God does everything for us. Glory to his matchless name. The one who gave his life for the world. The one who gave his life for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our salvation in metaphor and in actuality. And there's one last thing. This, there is one single word that ties all these three metaphors together. Did you catch it? That word is blood. That is a word that I hate. I hate thinking about it. I hate looking at it. And if you know me very well, I hate giving it even worse. But Jesus' blood is critical for understanding justification, redemption, and atonement absolutely critical because attaining all of these things cost Jesus his blood and without that sacrifice there can be no justification no redemption and no atonement and all that Jesus requires of us is to accept by faith that sacrifice that blood I'm done I'm closing now and the musicians can come and play um, if that's your custom here. Some years back, um, I spoke to a congregation in Massachusetts about the Holy Spirit. And in that message, I said that the Holy Spirit needs to be effective in our lives or efficacious. It needs to spur us to Jesus over and over again. The Holy Spirit is bound up in everything I've said this morning for the past 20 minutes. You see, without the Holy Spirit's efficacious presence in our lives, we would not even have the power to accept the blood that I was talking about. It would be impossible. Moreover, we would not even have the desire to recommit our lives to Jesus even after sinning without the Holy Spirit. And there's one more important thing that I want you to know about. The Holy Spirit allows us to daily see Jesus, the standard we know we will fail to reach if we examine ourselves at the end of each day. You know, there's an old priest who knew well the power of the Holy Spirit and how it could make him much more humble. That priest's name was St. Patrick, and he penned some very beautiful words that he would recite to himself at the, at the start of every day. These words, if you want to look them up, come from a longer work called the Lorica, St. Patrick's Breastplate, and it was written in AD 377, just about 300 years after Christ died. 
This old priest said that these words made him much more humble because he knew he could never live up to what they were saying. And he knew that all he could do was make a reasonable attempt with the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ to my left and Christ to my right. Christ when I lie down and Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in the eye of everyone who sees me. And Christ in the ear of everyone who hears me. And then he ends this work by saying, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. That's why we're here. That's why we worship. Everything depends on Jesus and our faith in him who believes the word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of salvation and redemption. Our prayer is simply this. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way in our lives. Have your way in our families. Take the throne of our hearts without a rival, without a peer, and help us to work out our own individual salvation. We give you full control of our lives. Thank you for accepting us and give us the daily strength to accept you. Seal our decisions in eternity and help us to walk with you as long as we have breath. And now, may the very God of peace sanctify you through and through. And I pray, God, that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And we all say together, Amen and Amen. God bless you.